Equity is brought to you by ExtraCrunch, that TechCrunch paywall you run into every week. You can get over that paywall at a steep discount if you use the promo code EQUITY. Doing so not only makes you super cool, it makes us look good internally. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm, and I'm joined today by Danny Crichton, one of TC's myriad managing editors. Danny, how are you? I have power. That is the new bar for living and survival in America these days. Yeah, shout out to well, one of our colleagues in Texas and also just everyone else out there who's suffering in the snow and the cold, no water, no power. It's really a mess. Here's hoping for a quick recovery there. And now we're going to hard pivot to sunny California. Natasha Mascarenas, how are you doing? I was like, do I even speak? Do I talk on the show today? I was going to complain about how much sugar fell into my coffee this morning, wow. but I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> Let's move into the show, Alex. <laughs> All right. So today on the show, we have some Bitcoin news because it's unavoidable in the recent couple of days. The creator and passion economy, we have new funds. We have some funding rounds in there. We're going to do kind of a team riff on startup competition, market sizes, and what's coming up for the changes in the VC world. Danny's going to give us a thumbnail about LiDAR SPACs because they fit directly into that conversation. And then Natasha's going to wrap us up with some EdTech Zoom alternatives and how EdTech is actually going to change university for the better. So it's going to be fun. Natasha, where do you want to kick off? Let's start with Bitcoin, which we actually have been talking about on the show more than usual. But Alex, give us the latest on Bitcoin's price and rise. The short news here is Bitcoin crossed 50K. And I looked back in time and guys, the first couple of pieces I read about Bitcoin back in like 2013, it was like Bitcoin falls to $72 and <laughs> sad horn effect. Right. If I just, if I theoretically just bought all Bitcoin and then did nothing else, I would have more money than I do now. So that broke my heart a little bit. I'm just curious about impressions. Do you guys hear more about cryptos in your personal lives lately than you did before? Natasha, you're not in your head. Tell us what you're hearing. Yeah, definitely. I think there is still, at least among my friends who all work in startups or peripherally, they're all considering doing it in slow chunks. But it's not hard to be convinced on Bitcoin because it's been on the up and up for the entire year. Alex, you had some historical data in the piece. At the beginning of the year, it was around the 30,000 mark. And now it's at 50,000, about a 66% increase. But even more impressively, in 2020, the price of Bitcoin was 10000 which means it's grown 400% since last year. Yeah, that makes me want to cry. My salary yeah. hasn't gone up by 400%. It went up by like a percent. <laughs> Maybe it was two. I don't know. But like, I mean, th- this is why people get attracted to cryptos because the possibility of appreciation is so high. I mean, Danny, this is the same kind of greed we saw in GameStop, albeit in kind of a different format. But I'm curious if, you're, uh, if your venture boys and friends are also putting their salary into the cryptos. I, mean, I think everyone's investing in crypto. Everyone's trying to get into NFTs. We actually have one of our non 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 crypto writers actually having an nft conversation i believe as we speak our news editor daryl etherington is getting informed about the non-fungible tokens out there and they're not just spending their own money right they're spending their firm's money so one of the big news stories this week was blockchain.com one of the original kind of wallet services has been around a very long time one of the most popular raised 120 million dollars and now has raised a total of 190. So obviously a huge round for them. Most of their capital just came. 65 million wallets since 2012, according to the company, 28% of all Bitcoin transactions have been through a blockchain.com wallet or on their exchange service. So a ton of names of firms that I've never heard of, which is typical for crypto rounds. Uh, it's like, who are these people? We don't know. <laughs> but clearly, you know, VCs are putting a lot of money in. Everyone's dumping in their capital. Does anyone want to explain why wallets are a thing in Bitcoin? Because I recently learned about that and I still think it's a head scratcher for people who don't cover and follow Bitcoin. Let me create one quick distinction. 
Okay, so wallet is sort of obvious, right? You have cash, you need to put it somewhere, right? You aren't going to just like attach cash with a paper clip to the front of your shirt unless you're foolish and you're walking around New York that way. That's called fashion, by the way, for those who don't know. <laughs> but in the, in the wallet world, one of the major distinctions is between custodial and non-custodial wallets. So custodial yeah. wallets, Coinbase would be a good example. That means they actually are owning your tokens. They are the ones in charge of it. They own the currency and they're holding it on your behalf. You don't control the currency yourself. Blockchain.com is a non-custodial wallet, which means you own your own currency. Like you own the keys to it. You have control over it. They're not owning it on your behalf as a proxy. You own it directly. And there are reasons, given all the scams and stuff that has happened historically in the industry, why non-custodial is popular among longtime power users. Nonetheless, it's much more complicated in general to control your own keys, which is why Coinbase has been more popular. If that all sounded very technical, it actually really matters in kind of a political bent, because there's a lot of people inside the crypto world who say, if you don't own your keys, you don't own your coins. And so the distinction between Coinbase and blockchain.com here actually really matters. It sounds like it doesn't, but it does. And on that note, I know we need to move on from the crypto world, but like, guys, did you see the news that Coinbase is being valued at 77 billion on the secondary markets? I did. Yes. It's a lot of money. It goes to show if you make something popular enough, I mean, Coinbase is the easiest of all the wallet apps. Yeah, for sure. And UX matters in finance. I mean, we talk a lot about fintech on the show. Yep. If you have the best UX, if the most people can use the product, it's super easy. A lot of people join. Talking about all kinds of fun people joining fun things, trader economy is a huge topic these days. And Natasha, we have a, a major new fund from a very notable person in the passion economy world. Lee Jin, who coined the term passion economy a little over a year ago, has started Atelier Ventures, her debut fund to invest in startups that fall in that category. It's a $13 million fund. Lee Jin was formerly working at Andreessen Horowitz, left during the pandemic, and then raised this entire fund. I mean, if anyone has covered a creator economy funding round in the past year, she is on the deck, <laughs> especially if the startup is gaining traction. I feel like this was inevitable at some point, and we've known that she has a fund. This was kind of the formal announcement. And we know that she's already invested in Substack, Stir, which we'll talk about later, yep. Dumpling, and LPs include Andrew Chen from Andreessen, Sam Yam of Patreon, Hunter Walk of Homebrew, David Sachs, Kevin Lin, all the normal big people. <laughs> so a lot of validation for someone who, you know, rightfully made a big splash with her framing of a trend before it even happened. I think she's done an amazing job. I mean, she's really popularized what I would call the creator economy 2.0. There was all this focus on creator economy in 1.0, right? Patreon was a 2013 company, if I recall. Medium is from that era, right? And there was really a focus on trying to help people build passion careers. I think she's shown a pathway of saying in this decade, in 2020s versus the 2010s, you know, there are now better and more reliable models to create the passion economy. And I think most critically, there are lessons learned from around the world, particularly in Asia, where the passion economy has actually taken off far better than in the United States. So you're seeing a little bit of importing of ideas from outside, some new fresh approaches to actually making this sustainable and reliable. And she's been at the center of building up that whole economy. Yeah. So how do we end up with kind of a passion economy 2.0? Well, I think in her definition of the passion economy, we can see what has changed since 2013. She defined the passion economy as where people, quote, build audiences at scale and turn their passions into livelihoods. And I think the scale thing is what matters because Medium is miles bigger than it was back then today. Patreon's gotten much larger. Just the number of people you can reach both in your home market and in other markets has gone up, making this possibly a bit more possible. One of Legion's more interesting thesis is that she wants to invest in the middle class of creators, basically believing that platforms only win when a large base of creators can grow and succeed. We saw it with TikTok when anyone can kind of go viral. So I'm interested to see what kind of technologies fit into that bucket because it definitely requires an evolution from thinking of the OG YouTube creators, David Dobrik's, 
to someone who just can start a cheese board in a box business on TikTok. And the good news is more capital is going into companies that are helping creators do this. One of which actually, Danny, is Circle, which just put together some new money. Yes. Yeah, so this is not the Circle blockchain company, nope. which is a major player in that space. But this is Circle, the creator economy company, raised $4 million at a valuation of what they described as north of $40 million, which is actually nice. It's like it's nice when you get a floor and not a pre-unicorn valuation. Which means nothing. It's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the company is essentially, I would call it a notion in integrated connective tissue for the creator economy. So the idea is to be the one-stop shop for your community. It's where the discussions take place. It's where you can connect between the creator and the audience. Danny, can I jump in here? I've never used Notion. I hate to confess that on the show, but I don't know what the f*** that means. What does no- Notion for X mean? It, it means banjo for Q. What, what is it? What is it? <laughs> well, I will say, I don't think we're going to get Notion through the parent company uh, procurement process anytime soon. So you've got about six years to wait until it'll be in our <laughs> workflow. It's like a mix of Trello conversations. So in Circle's world, they call them spaces. But the idea is like you can post a topic. People can have a discussion of the topic, a threaded conversation. You can post photos. You can post collateral. You can post events and deadlines. The key is they want to start integrating across a bunch of different platforms. So if you're selling tickets, selling merch, selling a subscription, all that can run through Circle. And that becomes your, like your home base. The company last raised 1.5 million seed in August 2020. And according to the company, they surpassed 1 million ARR last month. So essentially Circle, which wants to be the notion for the creator economy, is being valued at 40x ARR. That's right. More than 40x. It's more, more than 40x, 40x. ARR. Yeah. But to be clear, though, at the rate they're growing, you know, their usage is up 40 to 50% month over month for DAUs and MAUs. You're going to end up with a lot more ARR pretty quickly. This could be cheap in, in six months. That's right. And the key to Circle is they're very personality driven. So, I mean, a lot of media companies, if you're looking at Substack or Pico or some of the others, are multi-team oriented. Yeah. Circle's kind of core group, uh, many of whom invested in the company are sort of single creator personality driven YouTube stars in that kind of world. So they're nailing like the individual creator less than the team creator right now. I know what Alex is thinking of right now. <laughs> say, it, um, say it, say it, say it, say, no, it, say it, say it. You can be me to Danny. Okay. Two words. I did not know who Casey Neistat is. <laughs> yes. Is it Neistat? Neistat? Who knows? Do we address the elephant in No the one room? knows. Everyone's annoyed by this. People are like, oh my God, you don't know Casey Neistat. Who is this guy? I don't know. How did you avoid him? Like, this is humbling he, he, for him. So. He, he pops up out of the ground like a fucking garden gnome. He disappears in your social feeds. He's just, he's, you know, ubiquitous. I did want to give one note about Circle before we move on to Stir. Circle raised this funding round and had a lot of the round going to customers. That's right. I want to say, I'm going to get this wrong, quarter to a half of the round wow. was actually led by the creators on the platform, which That's is what right. really kind of made the round unique. We're going to see a lot more of this, which I actually wrote off as kind of a PR stunt. Okay, yeah, you're a community business because you let two of your users invest. But with a lot of the you know community first platforms going forward, we're seeing it with Didactic, which is Wes and Guggen Biani's new startup in the ed tech world who won't confirm their name of the startup. And Gumroad is also thinking of doing the same. We're seeing a lot of those creator startups need to do that to build out their promise that they're a community platform. I just wanted to say that none of that was in the notes and Natasha just dropped all that knowledge uh, (laughs) off the top of her dome. So points to that. (laughs) So we have Circle and then Stir. Guys, just briefly, why are these names so generic? Why not like Dodecahedron and Agitate? Would have been much better. Anyways, Andreessen Horowitz is putting money into Stir. Natasha, what's going on? Andreessen Horowitz is valuing yet another startup at a hundred million dollars. It's the new Andreessen minimum. (laughs) (laughs) And this time it's Stir, which is a creator economy startup that actually only works if the creator economy is pretty mature. So Stir is a QuickBooks for creators. It helps them see all the different revenue sources and figure out where their money is coming from and audience growth. 
Still in beta, it's a pre-launch, big valuation, big round, and it previously raised $4 million in October from Legion, Casey Neistat, and Homebrew. So, <laughs> Does Hunter Walk invest in everything that has a video? I was going to say. <laughs> I will say, for creators, I mean, it is really complicated, right? These businesses have so many product lines. If you think about all the different merch platforms, all the different streaming platforms, all the different subscription platforms, I think Stir exists precisely because it is so complicated. There's so many revenue sources. What was nuts, though, so this story was reported by the information. There's no round size. We only know the price, which to me, you know, is a little inside baseball is like that is like the strangest information to have. Like you have the price, but not the actual round size. I'm curious. Could they technically have raised one dollar at a higher valuation? They can't. That is wild. That's not technical. Like they could. We raised one buck from two creators, 50 cents each. Another startup that did that, sorry, this isn't in the notes, but Dispo, which we can't ignore this. I, I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they also had a hundred million valuation or are hovering towards that as they fight with Benchmark, Sequoia, and Dreesen for their latest financing. I think the information scooped that. I just want to point out that, so I'm on the, it's Dipso, right? Or Dispo. 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 Dispose. <laughs> Calm down. I, I, as a former Dipso maniac, I'm going to get my Dispos and Dipsos mixed up. Anyways, Dispo. <laughs> I'm on the Dispo beta and I keep getting followed by at porn and at Obama, I, I'm like, y'all need to figure out a little bit of community curation because I keep getting the same from my wallet, from my phone pocket. And I pull up my phone. It's like at porn followed you. I'm like, not really relevant to my, oh, good. is that a verified life. account? I, I don't know, but <laughs> they actually, um, um, in a full circle and I'm on Twitter way too much factoid at porn <laughs> faked being the VP of community at clubhouse in their bio. And that is not the VP of community at clubhouse. Wait, at so, porn on dispo was on clubhouse at porn's bio on dispo said that they were this the is, VP of community at clubhouse, wow, that is the most which confirms is, my thesis <laughs> that Andreessen Horowitz does not invest. It manifests. Look, I want to say I'm a staunch capitalist, but I am about to start the revolution right here. <laughs> okay. Let's like, move this on. is a sign that all <laughs> things are failing, but talking about capitalism, Talk Shop Live, if you're not getting enough shopping and e-commerce content in your own god darn streams, guess what? You can get even more live QVC-like material <laughs> placed right in front of your face. So Talk Shop Live raised $3 million from Spiro Ventures. And what they do is they focus on stars who are building out, I guess, their own e-commerce merch platform. So the example we have is Garth Brooks was able to sell 1 million vinyl pre-sales. Again, I don't know what this retro, what's vinyl? You don't own a record player? I don't own a CD player. I mean, I guess the PlayStation has a CD player, I think. No, that's a DVD. I think it can play CDs, can it Yeah, not? it can do both. No, okay. I have a record player. It's like the Swiss Army knife of devices. But back to Talk Shop Live. So more e-commerce live streaming. And this is, all again, uh, similar to what I was saying with Lee Jin's thesis and what we're seeing in the passion economy. This is a model that's extremely popular in Asia. We're seeing this in Korea and China throughout Asia is a ton of live streamers making money on e-commerce sales, influencers getting people to the purchase and through the checkout process. So I think Topshop Live is falling right in line with that. And it's super exciting. I agree with that. And I think we've saw, especially in the COVID era, Denny, because kind of live stream video e-commerce in China was enormous. That's right. And we just saw with HyperConnect, which we talked about last week, which is, again, live streaming a little bit less focused on pure e-commerce. But that is one of the major models, the 1.7 billion exits. So I think there's a ton of success here. It's an early round, a ton of companies going on, but they're focused on food and beauty. And people love food and people love beauty. Uh, at least yep. I used to back before I was locked inside for a year. Denny, you're still beautiful. Sticking to the uh, e-commerce trend, I have a little round that I wanted to squeeze into the show today. Pipe 17, which the name actually makes sense. Okay, I'm not going to go sense. through why it makes sense because it's going to take too long. But I had the founders explain to me what was going on and it worked out. Anyways, Pipe 17 has closed 8 million. And essentially what they do is they've made technology that connects different e-commerce tools. So if you need like your shipping thing to talk to your like sales platform, they can help you link those together. 
And it's not a no-code service because no-code usually involves like a visual interface where you drag and drop different things to kind of make connections between apps or whatever. What they've done is by going super vertical on their focus, you can just kind of tell it like this and that, connect them and it'll do it for you. And so it, it's pretty good. It's aimed at people that are doing between, you know, one and a hundred million in kind of e-commerce sales. And I think it's really cool. I, I love these tools that are sitting in the back end that are making everyone's life better and helping people who can't code do more. And it's Seattle, SF, and then also based around the world, kind of like a what I'm calling a micro multinational. Because <laughs> in, in the old days, going international, Danny was a big deal. You know, like you were multinational business. But now it's like every single startup is like one guy in Bogota, right. three in China, <laughs> no, one dude who only like, like no, eats reindeer, yeah. you know? We're talking about Circle. I think they're in the same boat. I think they're on like four continents or maybe five. I mean, that's just the future. So my view about the whole like, you know, remote work thing is watch what the young companies are doing because they have the best perspective on the future. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to talk about competition. And the segue for this is pretty simple. Pipe 17 has competition. Alloy, which I've covered recently out of YC, raised 4 million, kind of doing a similar thing. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the competitive market in the startup world because a lot of companies are getting older and they're going a bit more broad. And so when we think about the Stripe Phoenix fiasco, and if you don't recall what that is, an investor put money into Phoenix, they had money into Stripe. They had to walk away from their Phoenix investment because it was too close to what Stripe was doing. But the problem is these companies get so big and they do so much. If you're a, an investor in a company that is you know, super late stage, a bunch of the startup market is theoretically kind of out of reach for you or impossible to reach with current norms. So my question was, as startups stay private and they get so big, will we see an increased ability of VCs to invest in things that are related, if not directly competitive? And Danny, you know, this goes against the old rules, but everything has changed. So why not this? People have gotten less strict over the years, for sure. I mean, it used to be extremely strict. And then people started investing kind of in tangential businesses. And I think we're getting closer and closer and closer. So as one example, because we're not going to do a huge deep dive, despite your intro talking otherwise, LiDAR SPACs are a thing. There are six LiDAR SPACs, six SPACs that have bought LiDAR companies. LiDAR is the laser and radar focused sensors on cars to detect objects around them. You know, one obvious answer to this is like SPACs actually solve this problem. You can buy as many or as few LiDAR companies as you want. They can all be competitive and you can bet in the space. In the public markets, it's totally acceptable to invest in multiple companies that compete with each other. What's unique is that in the early stage private markets, you're not allowed to do that often because you have a board seat, you have governance or you have control. And what I think you're going to start seeing more and more are more folks who passively invest in companies where they're like, you know, public raised $220 million at a unicorn valuation, which is in direct competition with Robinhood. Yeah. Maybe I don't know who's going to win. Maybe it's public. Maybe it's Webull. Maybe it's Robinhood itself. I don't know. I want to invest in all of them because I believe in the space. Yes. So I want an ETF on popular consumer apps that are going to drive stocks up and crash the economy. That's my thesis. And so I think what we're going to see more and more is this world in which you give up governance so you can invest directly in competitors. Totally. You see it with VC firms as well, putting dollars into other funds and kind of getting oh, Intel yeah. being sent that way. Andreessen Horowitz does it. People are part of multiple scout programs, which if you think about it, it's like <laughs> I get to choose between Sequoia and Lightspeed right now on whose dollars I get to put in. This is kind of a slight stretch, but the point I'm trying to make is like venture capitalists have to make this decision every day. They try and stay competitive by putting dollars and people elsewhere. But the graying and lack of NDAs in VC and fundraising means that there is so much overlap that's going to happen, which could suck for early stage founders. Underline this piece that I wrote is the point that these markets are getting to be so big. You know, when we think about public versus Robinhood versus Webull versus M1 Finance, versus everyone else. I mean, what's amazing is there's space for all of them to be growing and raising this much money because there's just so much demand. And this comes into play in a couple of other areas. I just covered OutSystems, 
$150 million round at a $9.5 billion valuation. They're doing no-code, low-code apps for corporations, which apparently is a market of infinite size. And also I saw another OKR software company raise a ton of money. In this case, it was Ally.io, $50 million Series C. Every OKR-focused startup is growing like the Dickens. It just goes to show that, you know, there's not going to be one winner for one VC to pick. There's going to be probably multiple winners in the categories. It's going to get messier. And you're going to see, I think, money, Danny, kind of uh, almost against itself here and there. For sure. And look, many companies pivot. They move around. It's hard to even predict where a lot of them are going to run into each other in the future, right? So OKR is a popular category because it's one of the most highly engaged HR tools, right? Yes. The, the whole point of this is like Workday, which is very common among large Fortune 500 companies, including us. You know, we log in once a year to update our OKRs and I'm like, don't bother me. My objective is like, don't have any boring MFers talk to me. And my KR is like zero annoying people talk to me this week. Congratulations, you met your objective. That's not very good for the company. That's not very good for other people either uh, who want to talk to me. But I think that that's why you can see so much information here. So the question is, is then what does Ally do long term? Do they just do OKRs? Of course not. Right. OKRs is the on-ramp to a broader set of tools around productivity, getting into planning, getting into HR, and that's what all these, you know, we've now covered like 500 OKR companies on equity. That is actually one of our OKRs for the year is to cover all the OKR companies. It's actually literally one of my OKRs because every time I write about it, it gets a lot of reads. So that's fine. If, as long as people keep reading about this crap, I'm going to keep writing about it. So people love OKR software. I don't know why. I, mean, I just, I struggle with it. I live with someone who works at a startup and makes decisions at a startup. And I was like asking him before the show, I was like, do you use any OKR software? He was like, yeah, it's this really cool thing called Google Sheets. And it's a great startup. They're VC backed. And I was like, that's what I'm saying. So can you guys tell me who is using the software? I'm I sure there are say, people. I I'm shocked it's it. not a notion. So Natasha and I were at Crunchbase when we rolled out OKRs, right? Yeah. I remember you taught me what an OKR was. Well, we had so that conversation. I, I had to buy the book, measure what matters. I had to go to the yeah. executive <laughs> offsite. I had to help come up with the corporate. The point is we did them in, I think it was sheet stocks in a Google yeah. slide. Yeah, you know, but it was clunky and crappy. And so I think the idea here is if you're going to use these planning tools, which everyone's going to because they've become ubiquitous post Google, making them famous, you might as well have some good code around it. I think that what's surprising here isn't that there's software tools to help you do OKR as past what Google Sheets is, but more that so many people are willing to pay for it. And this goes to my broad thesis of the software market, even bigger than you thought, because there's infinite room for niche software. I got pitched a company, I'm going to be generic about this. They do a special type of developer meeting post product iterations to allow for better feedback loops on development tools and processes. Like that is a very small niche of the market. And yet they're doing great because that's the demand for software. So it, 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 it blows my mind. Natasha, you wrote a piece that I want to talk about because the headline caught my eye. Tired of Zoom University? So is EdTech. All my nephews and nieces hate Zoom schools. I'm very curious what you have for us. I always thought the biggest irony of the last year and EdTech's boom was that an enterprise video conferencing platform became a household name before any EdTech platform did when it came to education. And of course, that was Zoom, Google Hangouts, WebEx. So many of these platforms were used just to help students and teachers conduct class. And no EdTech company had the bandwidth or scale or money to do that in the same way. Well, we can debate on if that was a missed opportunity or just because VCs didn't put money into it, but I don't care. There's four startups that you should know that are trying to create a better Zoom University experience. There's Class, which raised $30 million, I think, two weeks ago on top of $16 million, so $46 million in 10 months, which is built on top of Zoom to make it better. There's Engagely, which is completely grounds up video conferencing technology that plays with how you view students in the class. 
There's Top Hat, which you guys know maybe as the textbook digitization business. They are creating a little asynchronous tool. So they don't believe Zoom University will ever work. So they're like, let's just do pre-recorded stuff. Ah. And then there's InSpace, which is a virtual HQS platform where you can kind of toggle around throughout the day. Wow. I'll pause there. For first wow. reactions. <laughs> uh, my first reaction is, is to spell Engagely. That is Engage L-I, which has to be the most impossible startup to find. Given it's, it's, it's pronounced Ingageli, actually. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a really good pasta. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds, it sounds like a great Italian presto sauce. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this is, is what happens analysis. after going to Zoom school long enough is you stop focusing on the material and you just start making Italian pasta jokes. Maybe that's what happened to us when we went to non-Zoom school. <laughs> so, Natasha, I, uh, my, my question is, and here's my view about EdTech. I read a lot of EdTech stuff and I go, hmm, okay. And then I think I'll see who's still alive in two years. Sure. Which of these companies do you think is the most compelling and has the highest chance of making it through the post-COVID transition? If I was a VC, I would say Class has the, maybe not the most ambitious, but the most chance of winning. Class is built on top of Zoom, so it does not need to convince people to download software. Mm. It's not hard to use. The problem with Engagely, even though what I think is the most ambitious one is Engagely, takes one hour to onboard teachers. I don't know any teachers that have an extra one hour on their hands. So I think classes penetration just simply by living on top of Zoom and not needing people to download anything else will have the easiest mm -hmm. adoption. Mm -hmm. One more question before we wrap up here. Top Hat, they raised $130 million in a series E to digitize textbooks. Now, to me, that involves a scanner, three interns, and some <laughs> web hosting. What, what am I missing? Top Hat's whole thing is that we're not going to put a PDF online and call it digitizing a textbook. We're going to make it interactive and build out quizzes in the middle of the textbook and stuff like that. And it's a big business when you think about the textbook business. So they're creating digital textbooks. They're not digitizing physical textbooks. They're doing both. They're digitizing ah. textbooks by making them digital textbooks. <laughs> Danny, what, was what, what, was that, what was that biology company we were talking about, or the medical company we were talking about a couple of weeks ago? Sketchy. Sketchy. That has a way better name. Yeah, that's, that, that is <laughs> in fact way better. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have to wrap. If you learned nothing this week, you learned <laughs> that it's not Atelier. Fincher's it's Atelier, apparently. Yes. And so shout out Lee Jen for using a French word. I didn't know that. I'm Alex. I'm with Danny and Natasha. We have Grace in the back and Chris somewhere else too. We'll talk to you guys soon. Bye.